0: I don't know if any of you are history buffs like me, but I love nothing better than a biography, like a really well-written biography. I just finished um, David McCullough's uh, biography on John Adams, and it it's one of those like, a thousand word, uh, thousand page biographies, and have you like one of them is they put you in the place of a person, and we lived in the same spot. We stood right here in this yard. There would be a church here, but it would look nothing like this, right? We're talking like a log cabin church. And there would be people here, but they would look nothing like us. They would look, they'd be wearing different clothing. They would be, I don't know, dirtier probably, because there was not as many showers or any showers, right? That's what's so fascinating about histories and biographies is it puts you in that place of another person. It puts you in a mindset of what a person was like, what life was like in a different time. It's also true if you talk to somebody who lived a very long time. One of my favorite people to hear stories from is Mr. Hugh. He's 95 years old. He's lived here his entire life. And he has some great stories. You should call him on the phone sometime when you don't have anything else to do and just ask him to tell you stories because they're fascinating. Like, he told me the story of the cotton gin that used to be right there. Can you imagine, like right there, right? The cotton gin that was right there in the yard. <laughs> and how people would come from everywhere with their cotton. And that was like the center of town was this cotton gin. And everybody came and came to the same cotton gin. And how they would have big like cotton gin parties essentially with everybody in town. Or the time when his house burned down when he was a kid and he was here working at the cotton gin and somebody drove down the road and said, Mr. Hugh, your house is on. Everybody knew whose house it was, right? There was a house on fire and everybody in town knew that that was Mr. Hugh's dad's house and where they would be in the cotton gin. It's great stories. And we all have those stories. But can you imagine the change that someone who's 95 has seen in the world? I mean, the fact that I said there was a cotton gin right there. Many of us probably have never seen a cotton gin in real life. I don't know, have you? uh, People have seen real cotton gins in real life? I haven't. I'm not a thousand percent sure I've seen a real cotton field to be honest. (laughs) Or remember like not that long ago when you would drive down the road and it would be full of tobacco, full of tobacco fields. And again, um, Miss Yankee has never, I don't know that I could tell you what a tobacco plant looks like, right? We grow corn <laughs> and sheep. <laughs> it's, a different, it's a different life. It's a different perspective on the world. And it got me to thinking that for 75 years, the church has defined itself by what it does on Sunday morning. When you talk about going to church, you mean coming to church on Sunday morning, Right? We tell one of my friends, this was a big bugaboo of theirs, she always said, no, we're going to worship. Church is something different. And I never really thought about it. But church for a long time was defined as what happened here on the steps in the sanctuary on Sunday mornings. But it wasn't always like that. That wasn't always how we thought about church. Church. In fact, it wasn't always like that within recent living memory. People who are alive today can tell you of a time when that wasn't what church meant. For example, did you know that Sunday school started as a way to teach poor children how to read? It didn't have anything to do with God. It was an outreach. It was a mission activity. They realized children who didn't have access to school didn't know how to read. And so they brought them together for Sunday school. And gave them a Bible and taught them to read. Or a time when church wasn't even every week. If you grew up where I grew up in West Virginia, there were um, itinerant preachers, which meant that they only went to your church once a month. And so everybody came out of the coal fields and out of the mountains down into church once a month. That was Sunday. That's when you went. And every other time, all three other weeks of the month, you were too busy farming or living to go to church. My grandfather tells a story of when they built the church in his coal mine camp. It was 1935. He said before that, they just gathered wherever the fields were, wherever they happened to be and read the Bible and talked about God. Church didn't always look like this. Now, Acts gives us a picture of a completely different church. The book of Acts is all about the beginning of the church. It's titled, for a long time it was called, The Acts of the Church, or The Acts of the Apostles. And it was always um, to define, to help people understand what the beginnings of the church looked like. Now you have to understand for the people in Acts, their, their life, their faith life was defined by what happened in the temple, in Jerusalem. One of the big arguments we know about the Sumerians and the Good Samaritan. Right? And one of the big arguments the Samaritans had with the people who worshipped in Jerusalem was where the temple should be located. Right? So they got in this big argument, it should be in Jerusalem or it should be in Samaria where the people still lived and stayed from the Babylonian exile. And so they got in this big fight about it. But either way, it was really important that you lived in the temple, that you worshipped God. And the only people who got to see God, got to interact with God, were the, the priests. And this was how they understood their faith, these disciples on that Easter morning, these disciples in the early church, that faith meant going to the temple and giving an offering to God and trusting the priest to pray for you. But Acts tells us of a church that's completely different. You see, the church in Acts doesn't get to stay where it is for very long. Chapter 1 in Acts, Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father, and you are going somewhere else. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to send you out into the world. The world. These are people who had to walk everywhere. Can you imagine what that sounded like to them? The Holy Spirit's going to drive you out from this place, and you are going to go to the ends of the earth. And by the way, you're going to have to walk. Impossible. It was an impossible dream. They didn't know how this was going to happen. They didn't even really believe it was going to happen. And so they just started with Samaria. (laughs) Because that's not Jerusalem, but it's sort of close. And so it counts as the ends of the world if all you ever knew was Jerusalem. And then God quickly said, no, it can't just be Jerusalem. It can't just be Samaria. I'm going to make you go to Greece and to Rome and around the Mediterranean Sea. And guess what? I'm going to send some of you to China. I'm going to send some of you to China. And we know they went because archaeologists found a scroll from the second century AD in China, in Chinese. And you know what it says? The Lord's Prayer Second century, and they walked there. Or how about India, which to this day claims its patron saint is St. Thomas. You know, St. Thomas the Doubter, who walked to India to tell the story of God. The church went, it was sent. Acts one, go out into the world, preaching the good news of the gospel. The church has always been bigger than one place. It's always been bigger than Jerusalem. It's always been bigger than the Holy of Holies in the temple. It's always been a worldwide vision. Now Philip, in this Ethiopian, he met along the side of the road in the wilderness They were different people. They were completely different people. Philip was a Greek, was a Greek-speaking Jew. He probably lived in a nice house. He had nice friends. They had dinner parties. He probably had nice things and nice clothes. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. And then on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, he meets this Ethiopian. (laughs) Now, This Ethiopian is fascinating. Fascinating because what was a Jew doing in Ethiopia? Right? What is a Jew doing in Ethiopia? I thought all the Jews lived in Israel, right? So, what's a first century Jew doing being a palace official in Ethiopia? Hmm. Maybe God's family was always bigger than Israel. Maybe God's family was always bigger than the people that they could see around them. Because you see, what happened was when the temple was destroyed during the Babylonian exile, and you know all the people were taken out of Jerusalem and sent to Iraq and Iran, some of those people decided instead to go to Africa and start their own colony. And so there have been Jews in Africa since the 6th century before Christ. Even when God's people were the chosen people, and it was just the chosen people who got to be in God's family, they were already bigger than Jerusalem. They were bigger than that. They were already in Ethiopia. They were already in Iran and Iraq and Turkey. God's church has always been big. And so Philip and the Ethiopian meet on the side of the road and they get into an argument about what Isaiah means. They both have their Bibles out and they're sitting by the side of the road arguing about what God meant by this chapter in Isaiah. Do you remember the last time you got in an argument with somebody about what this chapter meant in the Bible? The Ethiopian was carrying with him a scroll of Isaiah so he could read it, so he could study it, so he could learn from it. They were both members of a shared faith. They both believed in the same God. They read the same Scriptures. They just had different worldviews because they came from different places. The Greek speaking Philip and the Ethiopian court official are going to have different views of the scripture because they came from different worlds. They spoke different languages. They understood God differently. But they met. And the Ethiopian wanted to know who this man was that Philip knew, who this Jesus was who had blessed him. And they get an argument about who gets to be in the church. And Philip, you know, says, well, you've got to believe in God. You've got to have met Jesus and you've got to have these, these rules. And the Ethiopian looks at him and says, is there no reason why I can't be baptized? Can I not be baptized? I believe in God just like you do believe in God. I read my scriptures. Is there no reason why I can be baptized except for the rules that you're putting up, Philip? And Philip realizes, no. There's no reason why you shouldn't be baptized. You're in the same faith that I am. We are in the same tradition. The Ethiopian challenges Philip to make his vision bigger, make his dream bigger, the Ethiopian was an outcast, an outsider, someone who wasn't supposed to be part of the church. And he, all he wanted was to be baptized. And so Philip took him in the water and baptized him and said, You, this outsider, you the outcast, you the one who society looks down upon, you the one who doesn't quite fit, you are now part of God's family. He wants to know why he's not allowed to belong. And Philip realizes that there's no good reason other than it makes him uncomfortable. There's no good reason why the Ethiopian can't be part of the church except for maybe Philip doesn't know what to do with this person who's different, who talks different, who acts different, who maybe smells different. Is there any reason why I can't be baptized? God's vision for the church is bigger, it's wider. It's more than what we can imagine for the church. It's more than what we can imagine for ourselves. It's more than we can imagine for our community. God's church is bigger than what happens on Sunday morning. It's about what happens in our lives, in our day-to-day lives. It's about what happens when we meet the people who are outcasts, who are outsiders, the people that we don't understand, God's church is bigger than that. It's bigger than whatever rules we have about who gets to be a Christian in our minds. It's bigger than that. God sees you and me and the people who are different than us and says, is there any reason why you can't be baptized? The Discover Concord Group has been reading a lot of books (laughs) because that's what I like to do, and so I inflict that pain upon other people. (laughs) Every book that we've read about what the church is going to look like in the future agrees with one thing. that The church of the future, the church of the next 20, 30, 40 years, is going to be defined by what happens when we're outside of the walls of the church. It's going to be defined by the people that we choose to accept, the people that we choose to greet with open arms, the people who we choose to love on a daily basis. The church of the future is going to be defined by our ability to see God in the other person. Even when that's hard. Even when it's fearful. Even when it causes us anxiety. You may not know this about me because I feel like um, people think I'm an extrovert, but it turns out that really, no, I hate meeting new people. (laughs) I don't know if any of you else, if you have this problem, but like you go to a conference and you have to do the small talk part of the conference, you know what I'm talking about? They're like, greet your neighbor, turn and tell them three things about you. And I'm always like, I need to go to the bathroom, right? (laughs) That's not my gift. I have to make myself do that. I have to make myself acknowledge that I'm fearful of the way that other people are gonna look at me and understand me. It's not about them, it's about me, right? I have to make myself realize that it's my own problems. The other person doesn't know me, they're not gonna judge me, they don't care. In about five minutes, they're gonna forget my name. So meeting people who are different than us is hard. Meeting people we don't know is hard. It makes us anxious and fearful and scared, but what helps us is to remember that God already knows us and God already knows them, and there's no reason why we need to be afraid. Because what's the worst that can happen? God's church is bigger than our fear. It's bigger than our anxiety. It's bigger than our inability to see beyond difference. And so God calls us to reach out to places as foreign as Belarus and China and Zimbabwe. And God calls us to reach out to people as unknown to us as our next door neighbor. And God calls us to reach out to people who post things on their Facebook feed that we don't really like and love them too. God calls us to get beyond ourselves, beyond our fears, our anxieties, our preconceived notions of who God says yes to and to say yes to them, whether they like it or not. God's church is bigger than us. It always has been. And maybe it's time to return to our roots and be just as big as God